Hey, Pastor Chris here from the Grove Church team in Fort Collins, Colorado. Today, we're starting a new series entitled An Unexpected Christmas. If you shake any family tree, you never know what kind of people might fall out. And let's face it, we all have an uncle or a cousin we whisper about behind closed doors, and we all have a relative or two we try to avoid at family gatherings. There's no surprise there. But here's something you may not know. Jesus. He had a few shady characters in his family as well. Actually, he had some relatives that would make your most wayward cousin look like a saint. In An Unexpected Christmas, Pastor Julie and I will introduce you to a few of these colorful characters and the role they play in the Christmas story. We hope you'll join the conversation with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the hashtag AUCGrove, all one word. Be sure to check back weekly as we'll be posting new content with each part of the series. think about yourselves. Is there somebody in your family's story? Maybe they're not bad people. They're just interesting. That maybe when you shake that family tree, you don't know what might fall out. Well, I think when we take a look at um, the book of Matthew, as we're going to get into today, when we're, t- we're starting this series called An Unexpected Christmas, we're going to be taking a look at Jesus' family. And you may be surprised to know that when you shake the family tree of Jesus from the line of David all the way down, that you'll find that he had some pretty interesting characters in his family as well. And so through this series, we're going to be talking about some of those characters and some of their stories and the role that they play in the Christmas story. So here's a little bit of background for you. So um, as many of you know, the... um, the Bible, the, in the New Testament, there's, there's four Gospels which tell the story of Jesus. They're Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the only thing for the purposes of this, of this uh, sermon that you, you need to be aware of is that uh, three of those books, Mark, Luke, and John, all start with the story of Jesus. Two of them begin with the ministry of John the Baptist. But they all start with a story, except for one, and that's Matthew. If we look at Matthew chapter 1, you'll see that instead of starting with a story, Matthew begins with a genealogy. Okay? So in Matthew 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So, lineage, genealogy. This is how Matthew begins the story of Jesus. Not that interesting. So-and-so is the father of so-and-so is the son of so-and-so is the father of so-and-so. Pages and pages and pages. It's like, okay, I've seen this movie before. Let's let's move on, right? (laughs) Certainly not a page-turner from the very beginning. But Matthew, okay, he was a tax collector. When he was writing this, you have to think about the audience that he was writing this for, and that was for the Jews. Now, God had promised the Jews that a descendant 
of David would be on the throne. So if we're going to talk about this Messiah that's coming, the big question for the Jews is, well, he's, he's got to be related to David. If this Messiah is for real, God said that he would be a descendant of David. So what Matthew is doing is he's starting this lineage, this genealogy, by trying to prove that, and he, and he does. And so this, this journey begins with him saying, all right, Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. Now usually, when historians talk about lineage or genealogy in this time, it's mostly male-centric. It's all about the father and the son, the father and the son, and the father and the son. You don't generally hear a lot about the women in this particular day and age. And that's just the way the way it was. But we need to, to pause for a moment and talk about these historians, and, and there are sort of common practices of, of keeping history. Now, a lot of times, um, these historians, they were hired for a purpose. And so um, we talk about how it's, it's not good to rewrite history, but a lot of times these historians were hired, and, and they wrote history to make whoever they were hired by look good. Okay, and so occasionally there might be gaps in the stories that they're telling. But again, women were generally not really mentioned in lineage stories and genealogy. And so as we continue on, we immediately notice that Matthew does something strange. He mentions very early on in this lineage four women. Two really shouldn't have been mentioned, and three of the women weren't even Jewish. And you see, what, what's the significance? Remember, Matthew was writing this to the, the Jewish people to prove that Jesus is a descendant of David, that he, that he comes from this pure bloodline, but yet three of the women that he goes out of his way to mention are not even Jewish. There's a mix in there. What's going on? A little strange. Definitely not of the norm when it comes to uh, his, telling history of, of, of this time period. So let's move on to verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. So in there, the first woman he mentions is Tamar. Oh, Tamar. Suffice it to say, there are some verses in the Bible that talk about the story of Tamar, which I will not read aloud in church. <laughs> Those are verses that you will have to read on your own. But um, suffice it to say, there, there really is no reason to mention Tamar in this lineage. Just stick to the men like all the other historians did, but, but Matt doesn't. Verse 4, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now, Rahab, she wasn't Jewish either. In fact, her name was Rahab, 
But if you know anything about her, um, especially in, in, in the Old Testament, she had, um, well, how do I put this in, remain a gentleman. She was a woman of less than reputable nature um, in terms of her occupation. And she was called um, less than polite names. In fact, you know, if you were to go on up to heaven and you meet Rahab, you might just say, oh, you're Rahab. You're the woman um, they talked about in the Old Testament. There's really no reason to bring up Rahab yet. Once again, Matthew makes a point to bring her up. Matthew, verse 5, Boaz, the father of Obed, his mother was Ruth. Now, a lot of us have heard the story of Ruth, and Ruth is a wonderful story. She wasn't Jewish either. She was from Moab, and it's a little interesting how her story relates, and this is not really pertinent to this message, but um, I'm sure when you go all the way back to the book of Amos, you, you can see how it, well, maybe not, sorry. Um, Matthew is trying to convince people that Jesus is from a divine lineage. And so we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, why all of these distractions? Why all these offerings? Who cares? A lot of these women and men, Judah included, they're not really pertinent to the story. Why does Matthew go out of his way to talk about these people that are in Jesus' family? Finally, in verse 6, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Look at how that's phrased. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Hashtag uncomfortable. He doesn't, Matthew doesn't use Solomon's mother's name. Do we know what it is? Does anybody know what it is? Crickets? Bathsheba. That's right. So we knew Bathsheba's name, but yet Matthew chooses not to use her name. Instead, he says, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, if you're not a, a church person and you're not exactly familiar with this, this, this is referring to a point in David's life, which is probably that big thing that he wishes he could probably, you know, erase from his history. He fell for this woman who was the wife of one of his closest friends and generals named Bathsheba. And he had Uriah, this general, placed in the front lines of battle, where he was killed. So that David could steal his buddy's wife. I mean, this is a story that, I mean, I have to say, but I think the brothers Grimm would be in the corner going, no. I mean, that's some pretty serious stuff. I mean, we turn on you know, the, the soap operas today, and we see Law and Order, and we see that new show from Genji Cohen, and the weird stuff from Joss Whedon, but I'm telling you, this is, this is pretty intense. This is pretty crazy. Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why does Matthew put 
put it this way, why can't you just say Bathsheba? By saying, by calling her, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, it can't help but throw in a little bit of mystery and intrigue into this whole process. And Matthew is generating all of this mystery and intrigue and all of these questions and all of these offerings. We're only six verses into the story and we haven't even gotten to Jesus yet, right? So we're back to that question of why. This is the one gospel that doesn't start off with a story. It starts off with a lineage. Matthew must have thought that this was important. Well, Matthew spent three years with Jesus during his ministry here on earth. He stood next to Jesus when he taught to the people. He stood next to an empty tomb. Before that, he stood next to a cross where his Savior, our Savior, the Savior of the world, was put to death. But Matthew knew that all of these seemingly shady characters, Tamar, Rahab, Judah, he knew that all of their baggage, all of their sin, and all of their embarrassing stories, he knew that they, and that all of that, was the point of the story that he was about to tell. He knew that all of those things were the point of the story that he was about to tell. He knew that sin was the issue that Jesus came to address. Because Jesus didn't come just for sinners. But he wanted the world to know that he came from sinners. Jesus didn't come just for sinners. But he wanted the world to know that he came from sinners. And you know what? That's okay. Because that was the point. Matthew, he knew that this was a story about light coming into darkness. He knew that it was a story about life coming into an environment that was characterized by death. It's a story about grace penetrating the boundaries and the walls that the law had set up. A story about forgiveness in a world that has only known condemnation. But Matthew could also relate. As I mentioned before, Matthew was a tax collector. And so this is also, in part, his story. Because the people like Tamar and Rahab, the sinners, the lowest of low, those were Matthew's peers. Those were his friends. Those were the people that he associated with. You have, to understand, you have to understand that back in the day, the tax collectors, these people that bought the privilege from Rome to collect these taxes, they had the freedom to add a surcharge to the taxes that Rome asked them to collect. 
And so these tax collectors got very wealthy, but they were hated. None of us like paying our taxes. In this day and age, we're many, many years beyond Matthew's day, but we still don't like paying our taxes. We still don't like paying the tax man. It was no different back then. In fact, tax collectors were in a league of their own. Did you know the Bible actually differentiates them from even sinners? The Bible talks about sinners and tax collectors. We're talking two buckets of the lowest of low. And so those who were in those categories, they weren't allowed to be anywhere near the temple or in the temple. They had their own little world because they could only associate with those that were like them. So it's pretty interesting that when Jesus came to Capernaum and he and his disciples step off the boat in the city of Capernaum, these, the, the townspeople bring to Jesus a paralyzed man and they lay him before Jesus and they, they ask for him to heal this man. So Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And the people must have been going, huh, that's not exactly what we asked for. We asked you to heal this man. But there were people standing around that followed Jesus throughout his ministry. The Pharisees. These were educated people that were always looking for a way, some loophole, to bring Jesus down. They were, fine. they were always looking for a way to imprison him, to take him out, to say, oh, we gotcha, you broke the law. Because they always thought Jesus was pretty suspect. So when Jesus healed this paralyzed man, they pointed their fingers and they said, you can't do that, only God can do that. So these people, they were very critical, following Jesus around, criticizing his every move. But moments after that, we don't know exactly when, but moments after that happened, after the man was healed, we see in Matthew, in, in chapter 9, that that was when Matthew first encountered the Savior of the world. Moments after that, he was eyeball to eyeball with the perfection of holiness. God in a bod. Eyeball to eyeball with the Savior of the world. Now, we've all told some embarrassing stories. We've all been at parties, or maybe it was around Thanksgiving, where we said, you know, something happened to me, and you're going to laugh, but it wasn't really funny to me at the time. You want know, talking about an embarrassing spot for Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He was the lowest of low. And where was he when Jesus comes up after he heals the paralyzed man? He was sitting at a tax collector's booth. And Jesus and his disciples... Now, I'm just, I'm just trying to imagine this. The, the disciples don't like the tax collectors themselves. Here they are, and they see Jesus 
make an eye contact with Matthew, and that Jesus is going to go talk to him. And, you know, I, I can only imagine what the disciples must have been saying. Oh, Jesus, you don't, you don't want to go talk to him. I can just hear maybe Peter saying, are you sure this is wise for your campaign, associating with people just like that? But Jesus did. He went right up to Matthew, this tax collector, this man who was from the lowest of low that had committed so many wrongs. And in verse 9 of chapter 9, it says, as, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. What must the disciples have been thinking? Oh, Jesus, we don't... A tax collector? Really? Can we talk about it? No! And then Jesus says, we're going to Matthew's house. And then tells Matthew, hey, invite some of your friends. We're going to share a meal together. And I can just see Peter being like, ah, <laughs> sorry, line drawn. Not going, no. If we get seen with the tax collectors and all of their whole posse, what is that going to say about us? Ain't no way. Ain't nobody got time for that. Because there's this social stigma. But they went to Matthew's house and they shared a meal. But those Pharisees, the ones that were always critical of Jesus, they stood outside and they were really curious. They're watching all of this go down and wondering, what is he doing? The Pharisees asked some of the disciples, beckoned them to come out, and they asked, what is, why is your teacher hanging out with this crowd? What on earth could he possibly be thinking? And when Jesus heard about this, Later on in chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus said, and he, when he heard the, the Pharisees questioning why he was where he was, he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now you might think at this point in time, you know, he's, he's sitting there, sharing a meal with Matthew and his posse, and then he goes right outside and he tells people, well, you know, I, 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 I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sick. I think Matthew and his buddies at that point in time would have had pretty substantial reason to be kind of offended. He says he's coming for the sick, and here he is sitting amongst Matthew and all of his friends. But they weren't offended because they knew what they knew? Do you know what people who are far from God know? People who are far from God know that they are far from God. Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, 
but the sinners. And the tax collectors knew that they were sinners. They knew that they were hated. And so when Matthew considered all of this, he knew the story that he was going to tell was going to be the story of Jesus. He knew that including the sinners wasn't an accident. He knew that including them, it wasn't an aberration. It wasn't an error. In fact, it was the point. Because he saw Jesus live out this mission. I've not come for the righteous, but for the sinners. You see, Matthew, he understood better than probably any of the other gospel writers what the story of Christmas is truly about. It's about God drawing near to those who had drawn away. It's about God leaning in towards those who have leaned away from God. And he understood that he needed to highlight the problems in this genealogy because not only were they people, but they reflected why Jesus came in the first place. And after spending three years with Jesus, watching him teach, watching him be put to death, and standing next to that empty tomb, Matthew learned that Jesus changed the rules. This man that came at Christmas, he would change the rules. It used to be, and still for some of us today, that our approach to God is based solely off what I do, what we do, the things that we do, or the things that we haven't done. Well, I've been consistent at church. I've been going for six months straight, and I only missed one Sunday, and that's only because I got T-boned by a minivan. But the Bible is very clear. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works. Jesus changed the rules where people used to approach God based off of what they had done, what I had done, or the things that I did not do. He changed the rules so that our approach to God would not be looked at through the grid of the things that we've done, or the things that we didn't do, but it could be looked at by what he has done for me. See, there's, there's a total shift here. Matthew knew that if the only approach to God was through the things that he had done, or the things that he hadn't done, 
that there was no hope for him. And that he would be permanently cut away from God. He was a tax collector. He was one of the most hated members of society. But Matthew knew that if that was the only approach to God, that there would be no hope. And that would be it. But if the three years of watching Jesus and his ministry taught him anything, he learned that that's wrong. It's, that's not the option. That Jesus changed the rules so that we can come to the other side and we can look at our approach to God through the eyes of what Jesus did for us. Taking the onus off of us and looking at it through Jesus. The changing of the rule, the sinners of the genealogy, that's the point. God had not come for the people who felt that they had a standing in light of their own righteousness. He came for those people who knew they needed a different standard altogether. And so for the next few weeks as we continue this series called An Unexpected Christmas, we're going to look at some of these stories and characters in a little bit more detail. And you may be asking, why would we focus on all these other people? at a time of Christmas where we always talk about Jesus. But as the angel that proclaimed the birth of the Messiah said, he called Jesus the Savior of the world, which was born on that day. The Savior of the world. From what? sin. And that's the miracle. That's the gift. That's grace. The point of Christmas, that God sent a Savior, that's why the genealogy and the lineage is the perfect launch to the Christmas story. Because it highlights that the, that the world needs a Savior. So, my hope for you guys, as we go through the rest of the series, is that you would wrestle with this, that you would wrestle with this conversion from being in a place of things that I need to do or things that I haven't done in terms of earning my way to God. I would encourage you to wrestle with this and see the gift that allows us to be able to approach God not by anything that we've done, but by what Christ has done for us. Because, I'll tell you folks, the truth of the matter is, I don't care how good you are, I don't care how perfect you've been, I don't care how many times you use your turn signal, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. 
as we wrestle this to the ground, as we think about what that looks like for us and our lives to be people who are living life out in a way that we're not focused on earning our salvation, but that we are crucified people, people that have acknowledged that, you know, we can't escape the consequences of sin, that spiritual death. But we're going to live in such a way that shows that Christ interceded on my behalf. And that through the gift of Christmas, that through that, that gift of grace, we can get to God. What would it look like for us to live out of that reality? What would it look like for us to live out of that truth? Hey, thanks for listening to this message. Join us next week as we continue our series, An Unexpected Christmas. Be sure to join the conversation with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the hashtag AUCGrove, all one word. And check back weekly as we'll be posting new content with each part of the series. If you're ever in the area, we'd love for you to join us on Sunday morning. We are located just one mile south of Colorado State University and three blocks east of College Avenue at 301 East Drake Road. Our service begins at 11.30 a.m. and child care is available. For more information about this series, please visit us online at thegrovecommunity.net. We hope you have a great week, and thanks for joining us at The Grove.